if everything's ready here on the dark side of the moon, play the five tones. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Cindy Freeman and John LaSala. Hey folks, this is Cindy. And this is John. God, oh, well. Whew. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David J. Halperin. And he smiled and he said, Dave, Dave, you don't contain your enemy. You smash your enemy. You throw everything you've got at him and crush him. But first, it's about that time around here at Risk where we collect some of our very favorite stories of the past six months or so and put them together in a best of Risk episode. We've got number 27 coming up soon, and we'd love to hear from you to weigh in on what your favorites are. You can do that by heading over to risk-show.com slash best of risk, where you'll find a list of all the candidate stories, along with brief synopses for each one to jog your memory. You can even find links there to hear the stories again if you like. Then you can vote on your favorites, and the poll closes on March 12th at noon Eastern. So let us know. Again, that's at risk-show.com slash bestofrisk. We'll be right back. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show. They came from beyond space to enslave the Earth. Look out! They came from beyond space and they brought with them such horrors as the world has never seen. They came from beyond space. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and behind me now is DJ Disco Cats, 1977 disco perfection version 
of the theme from Close Encounters by John Williams. Because you knew there had to be a disco version of the theme from Close Encounters. And with me today are Cindy Freeman. Hello. And John LaSala. Hi. John and Cindy are two mostly behind-the-scenes people here at Risk. Cindy has told many stories on the podcast over the years, but she's also Risk's casting director and runs our corporate storytelling division over at the Story Studio and runs it quite brilliantly. And John LaSala is one of our audio editors and story producers. And these two folks have teamed up and concocted a spectacular two-part episode for you, the first of which you're hearing right now, Close Encounters of the First Part. The second part will be out next week, or if you're one of our awesome Patreon supporters, you'll find it's already all available to you ad-free and with bonus material. So if you haven't already, now would be a great time to become a Patreon patron, to help keep the podcast running, to get countless hours of bonus material, and have immediate access to this episode's sequel, Close Encounters of the Second Part. And you can do that at patreon.com slash risk. That all said, I am now going to turn this over to John and Cindy, and I'll see you on the other side. Huh. Well, there he goes. Bye, Kevin. <laughs> well, he is going to be so excited when he comes back and hears what we're up to uh, without him. When the cat's away, the mice are going to have a very yeah. good time. I'm really excited for these two stories, this episode and the follow-up episode. Mm-hmm. I'm just thrilled to actually be behind the scenes working on them. And this first story, especially the storyteller who you're going to tell us a little bit more about, is so eloquent and it's just well told. No kidding. And that's all I'm going to say. Yep. Today on Risk, we're going to hear a story by David J. Halperin. Now, I came across David on an episode of the podcast Monster Talk, the science show about monsters, discussing his book called Intimate Alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO. And I was so impressed just hearing David talk that I reached out to him and asked him to come tell a story, any story on Risk. And he obliged. Mm. So Cindy and I got together with David and he told us the story you're about to hear. He calls it, My First Alien Landing. This is the story of me and a UFO that landed in a New Jersey woods in the fall of 1964. I was 16 going on 17. I was a senior in high school, and for the past four years, I'd been a ufologist, convinced that UFOs were real, and that it was my destined task to solve their mystery. A few days after Labor Day in 1964, I got a phone call from my friend Jeffrey, and Jeffrey and I were real old friends. We played together when we were three and four years old, and now we were both high school seniors. And he worked part-time at a Trenton, New Jersey radio station. And so he was a bit more in touch with the news than I was. And he phoned and said, Have you seen the news? And I was not much of a newspaper reader in those days. I said, like, what news? And he said, the UFO news. And I said, what UFO news? And he sort of kept me on the string for a while. But then he read to me the article from the Trenton Times, from which it appeared that a UFO had been seen in Glassboro, New Jersey, about 35 miles from my home. Not only had it been seen, it had landed. 
And not only had it landed, it had left marks on the ground to vouch for its presence. Are you interested? said Jeffrey. I am interested, I said. And as he read me the Times story, I regularly punctuated it with wow, 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 hardly able to contain my excitement. I don't think there are too many teen ufologists around these days, but in the 1960s, we were almost a recognizable cultural feature. We were almost entirely teenage boys. Girls, it seemed, didn't go in for this kind of thing. And we were mostly dateless boys. I fit that stereotype. I wore thick glasses. I was unathletic. And although as raw material I was not bad-looking, I chose to uglify myself with clothes that really didn't suit me, predominantly flannel shirts in dull colors, a kind of a dullish red predominating, and I told myself I was too homely for any girl to like me. I entered my senior year never having had a date, but I was not entirely without hope that as my fellow ufologists and I unraveled the secrets of the UFOs, it was likely we would discover the secrets of their propulsion. And as that happened, I would probably be able to design and build for myself a functional flying saucer. And then girls might go out with me. While waiting for that discovery, I hankered for a really good sighting close enough to where I lived that I could go and investigate it. And now, thanks to Jeffrey, my dream had come true. So bright and early on the morning of Saturday, September 12th, I was on the bus to Glassboro. I say bright and early, I probably should just say early, because it was not exactly bright. The day was gray and luring and a great deal colder than I would have expected for early September. I wore a tan raincoat against the chill, which I actually liked wearing. I felt like a detective or possibly a secret agent. I carried a camera a notebook, a tape measure, the clipping from the Trenton Times, which Jeffrey had given me when I met with him, and a letter on the stationery of the radio station where Jeffrey worked, attesting that I was an authorized reporter for the radio station and requesting that anyone who saw the letter give our reporter the fullest possible cooperation. Of course, none of this was even remotely true. And looking back on it, it does seem a bit dodgy, and I'm just grateful Jeffrey didn't get into any trouble for this. But at the time, I don't think I had the slightest sense I was doing anything wrong. After all, I was a man on a mission that I was in the process of uncovering a scorned and unacknowledged truth, namely that our planet was being visited by extraterrestrials who might mean us well, might mean us ill. Either way, humanity must be prepared. And that it was a small number of scorned and unrecognized Many of us teenagers, you would probably have called us, if you saw us, UFO nerds, 
who were in the process of achieving this, and minor details whether I was really a reporter were too trivial to be considered. Among all the apparatus I carried, I did not include an umbrella, an omission that I was later to regret. As I rode the bus, I went over the story reported in the Trenton Times that on the afternoon of the previous Saturday, September 5th, two young boys, brothers, had been fishing at a lake on the edge of a woods on the edge of the town of Glassboro. They were approached by two young men who seemed very excited, telling them how the previous evening one of them had seen a glowing red light land in those woods. He hadn't gone to investigate then, understandably he may have been apprehensive as to what he might find if he did find the landed UFO. But the next day he and his friend went back and they found a number of markings in a clearing in the middle of the woods. There were three holes in a triangle which looked as if they'd been imprinted in the ground by some heavy object resting on tripod legs. Roughly in the center of the triangle, there was a crater larger than any of the other holes that looked like it had been dug out. And by the edge of the crater, there was a sassafras tree whose limbs had been broken, bent so that the leaves were brushing on the ground, and they had been charred, very much as if some heavy object radiating a great deal of heat had come down there. The young men left. The boys didn't think in their excitement to get the young men's names. But they told their father, who told the Glassboro police, who told the newspapers. And over the next several days, the story had spread to at least a dozen, and I think considerably more newspapers. And over the next week, something like 3,000 to 5,000 people came to visit the landing site. I was not entirely happy with that development. These were curiosity seekers rather than serious ufologists, and I thought there was an excellent chance that by the time I got there a week later, the curiosity seekers would have trampled over or possibly carried off an evidence that I would have been able to decipher in some way that we would learn more about this object. But of course, there was nothing to be done about it. So I got off the bus near the center of Glassboro, near the town hall, found the police station, and marched into the station equipped with my journalistic credentials which I showed the policemen in the station and requested that they fill me in on what they knew about the incident. Now, you're talking about a boy who, if he had to approach a girl and say, would you like to go to the movies this weekend? He would fully anticipate her saying, the movies with you? Ha 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 ha. And of course, I was too terrified to do that. But here I was marching in I mean, all these uniformed men, declaring myself a radio reporter. And what's even more extraordinary is that they took me seriously. I don't know if they had any idea that I was 16 years old. Maybe it was the raincoat that did it. It may have been that UFO nerd, though I was. I was really quite articulate, had an adult-sounding voice, and I had a gravitas and a sense of the importance of what I was doing 
that must have made an impression. The chief of police sat me down in his office and gave me a briefing. We had a couple professors here last week, he said, from some of the local colleges. And they looked at the holes. They took about three minutes to look at them. And they said, Chief, this is done by a hoaxer. And I said, how do you know it's done by a hoaxer? They said, well, I don't know, this and that and the other thing. And I said, look here, these holes, these tripod holes had been pressed into the soil. They were not dug out. And you can see the leaves that were on the ground that had been pressed in with them. And they just said, oh, well, we think it's a hoax anyway. And they left. And I recorded all this in my notebook. And then the chief says to me, would you like a diagram of the holes? And I said, I would love a diagram of the holes. And I immediately thought, that's not very journalistic to talk that way. But the chief didn't notice. And he went to this worry clunky old photocopy machine. It's hard to remember what life was like before the advent of Xerox. And he copied for me this diagram of the triangle looking beautifully symmetrical. And he hollered out, Smitty, there's a man here who wants to have a look at the UFO landing site. How about you give him a ride? There was a squad car, and I hopped in. We drove out to the site immediately. When we got there, we saw there was a sign, no trespassing. And Smitty says to me, don't you pay no attention to that sign. They don't mind people going on their land. Since the flying saucer landed here, there had been 10,000 people visiting it, and nobody's made any problems. And I got out of the car, I thanked him, and he drove off. I knew I'd have to walk back the mile and a half into town, but that was no problem. I was a strong walker. It would take me a half hour. For me, that was a piece of cake. I quite quickly found the dirt track leading into the woods to the landing site, and I began to walk there and it began to rain. At first, just drizzle, but it quickly got harder. And as I walked toward that clearing where the UFO had landed, I was met by a stream of people going quite sensibly in the opposite direction, back to their cars to get out of the rain. But of course, I had no car, And the mile and a half walk back into town no longer seemed to me quite such a piece of cake. Two teenage girls passed me, and one of them said to me, Are you a space scientist? My raincoat must have suggested a scientist's lab coat. I did look on a mission older than my years, but I didn't answer. The rain was coming down harder and I felt the urgency of getting to the site so I kept on walking and eventually I reached the clearing under other circumstances I might have paused to absorb the numinous awe of this concrete encounter with a visitor from outer space but I was preoccupied with more practical tasks Like, for example, how to keep my glasses clear of the rain that was cascading down them. I would wipe them every minute or so with my handkerchief, but the operation kept having to be repeated with very bad effects on my handkerchief. I could photograph the site, but how was I going to measure it? If I had my notebook to record my measurements, but I would need both hands to hold the tape measure, and I'd have to leave the notebook somewhere, and there was no dry spot to leave it on. So I didn't have the slightest idea 
how I was going to do that. As I was trying to figure out how I could manage it, I heard a voice from close to me saying, Would you like to share an umbrella? I turned and saw a large, handsome, dark-haired woman carrying a blue umbrella, which she tilted toward me as an invitation to come under it with her. And I said, no, thank you. I'm already about as soaked as I'm going to get, which turned out not to be true. I very shortly got even more soaked. And she said, uh, how do you do? I am I'm Elaine Jameson. We live in Glassboro, and we'd been meaning all week to get out to see this landing site, but we could never spare the time. And now my husband and our daughters are bringing up the photographic equipment. I'll introduce you in a minute. And I said, pleased to meet you, Mrs. Jameson. I'm David Halperin. And I said, I am director of the New Jersey Association on Aerial Phenomena, NJAAP for short. It's a scientific organization. I think I said an international scientific organization devoted to exploring the UFO phenomenon. And all of that, in contrast to what I told the police, was completely true. What I didn't tell her was that there were a total of 25 people in the organization, most of us teenage boys. I told her that there was a parallel case from New Mexico in the previous April that had left markings very much like this. It seemed to me that a pattern was beginning to emerge, and it was patterns that we had to discover if we were to solve the UFO mystery. And we had gotten to about that point when a man of medium height with graying, thinning hair came along. Of course, he didn't wear a beard. I mean, in those days, nobody wore beards except for beatniks and campus radicals and rabbinical students. And you were regarded as highly disreputable if you did. And with him were two young women who were introduced to me promptly as our older daughter, Melanie, wearing a heavy coat and a kerchief, quite sensibly, and our younger, Christy, who wore a windbreaker and shorts. Rather short shorts, to tell you the truth. Although I'd come there to study unearthly objects, this did catch my attention. She was a very pretty girl. She would have turned many heads in my high school corridor, my head was already turned. And as we set up the photographic equipment, we chatted. Mrs. Jameson said that David is the director of the, what? Uh, the NJ, I said the NJAP, New Jersey Association on Aerial Phenomena. Oh, so you really know what happened here? I said, well, I don't know, but I mean, we're trying to find out. And Melanie said, people are saying that this hole was made by some sort of a corkscrew coming out of the bottom of the flying saucer, like the way they do when they're drilling for oil and brought up the dirt. Does that make sense to you? And I said, yes, it does. I, I said, I would even be inclined to speculate that it's significant that it's so close to the lake. They may have been looking for water samples as well as soil samples. And I, I hastily added, but of course there's no direct evidence of that. The equipment was set up, and Mr. Jameson took photos. He took photos of the broken sassafras tree, of the central crater, of me photographing the crater, of his wife standing in the crater, holding an umbrella over her head, the girls crouching on either side of the crater, measuring it, using my tape measure and singing out to me their measurements, which now I was able to record in my notebook. I bent over it, sheltering it from the rain. Christie's knees 
shone in the rain. Finally, we finished these operations, and Mrs. Jameson said, Bill, this poor boy is soaked to the skin. Let's bring him home with us. Let him dry out. And she looked at me. She said, David, would you like to come with us? Well, at that time, I would have come with anybody, pretty much anywhere, just to get out of the rain. But here I was clearly with very nice people, and the presence of Christy and Melanie didn't make things any worse. So we all went down to their sedan, and we got in, and I sat on the back seat between Melanie and Christy, utterly tongue-tied, all during the ride home. The boy who was so fluent in the police chief's office could not utter a word. We came to a large, gracious house on a lush green lawn, which I imagined that if there was a touch of sunlight would have been iridescent. And we came into a vestibule, and Mrs. Jameson sang out, All right, shoes off, everybody. A second later, I could see why, that once we got past the vestibule, everywhere the eye could see was creamy white carpet that felt wonderful underneath my stockinged feet. This was a house a little bit different from the one where I lived with my father, just with my father because my mother had died not long before. We lived in Levittown, Pennsylvania, which was one of the first post-war suburbs to be developed and whose houses were of the sort that Pete Seeger immortalized with the song Little houses made of ticky-tacky all look just the same. There's a blue one and a green one and a red one and a yellow one, and they're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same. Uh, This house was definitely not made out of ticky-tacky, and it did not look the same as anyone else's did. Now, Mrs. Jameson had another idea. It was nearly time for supper. David, would you like to stay and join us? Well, I said, I I really, my father's expecting me back for, for dinner. No problem. Let's give him a call, see if it's okay with him. And I said, you know, this is, uh, it's going to be a long distance call. Oh, no problem. Okay, so we went to their phone, we dialed it, and that was in the days, you know, when you dialed a phone. And I told my father that I had met this very nice family, and they had invited me for dinner. And he was at first a little bit hesitant, but Mr. Jameson said, now let me talk to him, and put Mr. Jameson on. And I heard him say, oh yes, and we'll be sure to get him on the bus in time to get home. We'll be sure to get him back to you, safe and sound. And uh, my father said, okay, that'll be fine. And so we settled down to a lovely dinner. The daughters changed for dinner. And it's Christy, I remember, who came down wearing a skirt and a blouse that beautifully set off her auburn hair. And I was all eager to talk about UFOs. I mean, after all, I mean, they had a certified expert in their presence, but they wanted to talk about other things. I understand, said Mr. Jameson, that your people are celebrating a lot of holidays right about now. And my people was, of course, the Jewish people. I did look quite Jewish, and my name, Halperin, must have clearly indicated that I was Jewish. We read about them. They had a uh, an article in the uh, the living section of our newspaper about the holidays. There's Rosh Hashanah, isn't that your your people's New Year? 
And then there's a Yom, and I, and I helped him out, Yom Kippur, yes. He says, that's when you repent all your sins, yes? And I said, yes, we do. And he said that there, there's some other holiday right after that. I think it starts with an S. And I said, Sukkot, yes, Sukkot. And Melanie put in, the article said that it was the Feast of Booths. I mean, what kind of booths? Like telephone booths? And then she laughed, not, not mockingly, but like she was embarrassed that she was confused. At, Christy said, of course not telephone booths. And Christy turned to me and said, we studied world religions back in ninth grade. My group did the unit on Judaism. I think it's the most interesting religion. I was feeling there tremendously awkward, tremendously awkward. I wanted to badly to talk about UFOs because UFOs were what brought us all together. With facing the UFO, we were all one people. And now here I was, your people, that Judaism had set us apart. And this was something that I had absorbed particularly from my mother while she was alive. She had taught me that intermarriage was a bad thing and interdating Really, there were two logical outcomes of interdating, either intermarriage or heartbreak. So it also was a bad thing. And that had set me off from the nicest girls in my school. And now here it was setting me off from this lovely Christy. How much nicer it would be to talk about the cosmic mystery that confronted us all, that had come down on the outskirts of Glassboro hardly more than a week ago. In the words of Schiller, in the poem that Beethoven set to music in his Ninth Symphony, your magic binds together that which custom has strictly divided. And the customs they were talking about had strictly divided us. And the magic of UFOs could bring us together if only we would do it. I tried to explain about Sukkot. I tried to explain what booths were. No, they were not telephone booths. The English word really eluded me, perhaps shacks, that you built little transient structures of plywood walls and a roof made of tree branches. And some Jews of the more traditional sort, which didn't include me and my family, I hasten to add, ate their meals in them. Well, why do you do that? said Mr. Jameson. And I said, well, according to tradition, we lived in structures like these when the Lord brought us out of Egypt. But then I said, I think it's probably some pagan custom or something that we that we picked up. Mr. Jameson said, oh, how interesting, very interesting. And then to my relief, the doorbell rang. My relief was short-lived because there came in through the door a tall, husky, good-looking young man wearing a jacket and tie. And Mr. Jameson said, this is Christie's date. And I understood him to mean her steady date. And this is David Halperin. And I realized that I had been secretly imagining that Christie had dressed up so prettily for me. And I understood then for the first time that you can have an illusion that you don't even recognize until it's exploded. And then in that explosion, you feel the pain of it. But I stood up and shook his hand, me in my stupid flannel shirt, feeling like an utter idiot. And he and Christy left. 
Melanie excused herself. And Mr. Jameson said to me, David, I'd like to ask you a question, if you don't mind. This was the fall of 1964. It was the presidential election between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater. And for people of nice, moderate, liberal backgrounds like myself, Barry Goldwater was your nightmare come true, your right-wing extremist. I, I think nowadays he would not be regarded as quite so extreme, and we would more admire his virtues. But in those days, he seemed like a lunatic monster. And Mr. Jameson said, if you don't mind, could you tell me who you'd be voting for, if you were old enough to vote, that is. I realize you're not. So I said, well, I would vote for Lyndon Johnson. I didn't mention that I had just become chair of our high school's students for Johnson. And Mr. Jameson pondered that information. He said, well, nothing to be ashamed of there. You're in good company. They've managed to fool quite a lot of people, maybe even a majority. And he says, Dave, come into my study. So we got up and went into his study, and he asked me to sit down. I said, uh, Mr. Jameson, I do think we probably ought to be heading out for the bus stop fairly soon. He said, no, this will just be a moment. And he went to a bookshelf where there were a series of paperback books, about 15. All of them I could see even from a distance were identical. And he pulled one of them down and he gave it to me. And I saw its title was None Dare Call It Treason. And I opened it. I saw that the title had come from a 16th century English poet. Treason doth never prosper. What's the reason for when it prosper, none dare call it treason. And the message of the book was that the U.S. government had been totally infiltrated and dominated by secret communist traitors. And I looked at it. I, I, I felt it sort of radioactive in my hands. I, I, I said, Mr. Jameson, I really couldn't take this. I don't know when I'd be able to get it back to you. I I don't know when I'd have a chance to read it. Oh, don't worry, Dave, don't worry. You don't have to get it back to me. It's yours. I know you're a very busy young man. Read it whenever you get time. It may save your life. At least it'll open your eyes. It may be the most important book you'll ever read. I flipped through it a little bit more, and I said to him, Mr. Jameson, there's one thing I don't understand. If our government is dominated, taken over by communists, then why are we sending troops to contain communism in Vietnam? And he smiled and he said, Dave, Dave, you don't contain your enemy. You smash your enemy. You throw everything you've got at him and crush him. That's if you really want to beat him. We knew that back in World War II. Ask your dad, he'll tell you. If we hadn't known that simple truth back then, today there'd be a swastika flying over the Glassboro Town Hall right this minute. I knew, I knew there was some reason why this was impossible, why we had to respond to communist aggression in a measured fashion. But for the life of me, I couldn't think of it. And he said, Dave, take the book, read it whenever you get a chance. Now we better get you to your bus. And he drove me to the bus stop and we shook hands. And I got on the bus. And for a long time on the bus, I thought about the Jamesons. These were right-wing extremists. They left Barry Goldwater far behind them in their extremism. Yet they were about the kindest, most warm-hearted, most hospitable people I'd encountered. 
I'd always assumed that right-wing extremists were bound to be anti-Semitic. But if they were in any way hostile to Jews or Judaism, I couldn't pick up on it. Their comments had suggested a friendly and respectful curiosity. Now, I've often wondered whether if I had tried to date Christy, whether I would have encountered the limits of their openness. Maybe, but also maybe not. I really, I really don't know. I never saw them again. I did receive from Mr. Jameson a packet of the prints he'd made, showing me in my raincoat and with my camera flinching from the rain even while I photographed the evidence of UFO reality and Christie's shining knees. I set to work writing a monograph about the Glassboro landing, which I declared to be one of the most important events in the UFO scene in the past few years. And I had written about 30 pages of it when in January the awful news broke. A Glassboro College student had admitted having hoaxed the whole thing. He and his friend had dug the holes which the chief to the contrary were not pressed into the ground. They had broken the sassafras tree. They had set off firecrackers in the holes, which might account for the jarring of the the leaves, or possibly they had tried to burn it with a cigarette lighter. I don't know which, but in any case, that was the story the boy told. Of course, I didn't believe a word of it. He was a publicity hound. He was out. He thought perhaps he could sell his story to a Philadelphia magazine for a couple hundred dollars. The holes had been pressed into the ground and not dug. But in short, this was my UFO, and I was not relinquishing it without a fight. But after a while... I mean, I realized I wasn't convincing anybody, not even other ufologists, and I let the whole thing drop. At about the same time, I was making a discovery no less astounding, that believe it or not, there were easier ways to get dates than to build your own flying saucer that there were one or two girls in my high school, conceivably even three or four, who thought that underneath the UFO nerdiness and the flannel shirtiness, I was kind of a neat guy. And I won't say that this discovery was transformative, but it did change things a bit. It did expand my horizon somewhat. And the UFOs naturally faded from these expanded horizons. Even though it was a few years before I stopped believing in them, and a few decades before as a grown man and as a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I was able to look at my ufology and to ask What did it mean to me? What is the spell that UFOs cast over me, that they cast over millions of people today? And to tell you the truth, that they still cast over me, even though I don't believe in them. As of this year, 2022, the UFOs are still flying. They still have the magic that binds together that which custom has strictly divided, exist or not, they still have the magic that binds together me and the Jamesons underneath inadequate umbrellas on a rainy day in a New Jersey woods, then I say, 
God bless them. Forever in peace may they fly. If you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Risk. John LaSala here, and this is the disco arrangement from the original Close Encounters of the Third Kind soundtrack, which actually reached number 13 on the US Billboard Hot 100 in March 1978. It was a dark time, my friends. 
But before the break, we heard David Halpern's story about his first alien landing, which turned out not to be extraterrestrials from outer space, but young David himself as the alien, landing in the midst of a conservative family in Glassboro, New Jersey, 1964. You can find more about David and his writings on everything from UFOs to Jewish mysticism and messianism at davidhalpern.net. Oh, and you know those photographs David received from Mr. Jameson? Well, he still has them. And you can see a few of them on our website. Just search for the Close Encounters of the First Part page to see teen ufologist David Halpern examining a hole in the ground. Now, I edited and sound designed that story, which was followed by a bit of Beethoven's Ode to Joy on the poem by Friedrich Schiller, adapted to English by David Halpern and me, and performed by our very own Hope Rush, which was beautiful, if you ask me. Performed incredibly nicely, if I do say so. That was beautiful. Sublime. And that about wraps it up for this episode. But please join us for our next episode, which is Close Encounters of the Second Part. David Halpern will be joining us. And this time we're going to listen to Bella Clark as she tells her own UFO story, which very much parallels and complements David's. But, oh, in so many ways, it is very different. I'm truly excited. So please join us next time. Here's a taste of that. I saw something never wanting to, and then I have to live the rest of my life kind of reconciling with it. So we're kind of symmetrical then. You saw it without wanting to, and (laughs) I wanted to without seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And as a reminder, Patreon patrons will find this next episode is already available at patreon.com slash risk. For everyone else, next week. And meanwhile, if you have a UFO-related story that Risk listeners ought to hear, please reach out. You can go to risk-show.com slash submissions or email me directly at pitches at risk-show.com. Whoa, Cindy, what's that? What? Where? Up there. Is that a, a flying saucer? It can't be! Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're back. Oh, well, would you look at that? That wasn't a flying saucer at all. It's Kevin. He's back. He's back. Oh, my God. Where have you been? <laughs> Guys, what a world of wonders I just visited. I, I, tell, I assume I was on Uranus or something like that, but sometimes I can't tell I'm apart. You know what? Maybe I'll just have to tell that story on another episode altogether. <laughs> it's a very good idea. <laughs> All right, Kevin, it's that time of the episode where you say that thing. So say that thing. Yes, the motto to live by. Sure. Remember, guys, today's the day. Take a risk.
Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes all the same. There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all go to the university and they all get put in boxes, little boxes, all the same. And there's doctors and there's lawyers and business executives and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all just the same. They all play on the golf course and drink their martini dry And they all have pretty children and the children go to school And the children go to summer camp and then to the university And they all get put in boxes and they all come out the same and the boys go into business and marry and raise a family and they all get put in boxes little boxes all the same there's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same